Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the role of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you enjoy this show, please tell a friend or colleague about it and help spread the word. If you want to also search for other episodes or learn about some of the other resources that are available to you, head over to theconsumervc.com. My guest today is Brendan Rogers, one of the co-founders of WAG and 2AM. WAG is the number one app for pet parents and the leading on-demand dog walking platform. 2AM is a venture fund investing in the next generation of entrepreneurs in India. We discuss the insight that led him to founding WAG, how they approach scale, and the opportunity he sees in India as an investor. Without further ado, here's Brendan. So, Brendan, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you? Great. How are you doing? Doing really well, man. Thanks again for joining. So, what was your initial attraction to technology and consumer? Yeah, it's a great, great first question. I would say when I was in like junior high slash high school, I was like a big person that used to burn CDs and I was on like Napster and LimeWire and Aries. And I just thought it was so cool how like, I could burn CDs, make mixes, and then sell them to people. That was like my first little side hustle. And, um, you know, just technology in general, like I saw, like I was a very big like person selling stuff on Craigslist and eBay early on. I just loved like the power of the internet and how, you know, you could be at your house and, and make money. Like you don't have to really be like any age. So I was like a 14, 15 year old, you know, selling stuff on Craigslist and my parents would take me to open parking lots and sell electronics and stuff. So that was like my first taste. And then in terms of like consumer, yeah, I think like just like those products in general, Craigslist, eBay, all consumer facing products. So I just had a a liking for it. That's cool. So it almost like technology also inspired you to become an entrepreneur on your own, even since junior high, which is pretty cool. That's awesome. So how did you kind of think that, okay, maybe I wanted to be an entrepreneur you know, maybe after school. And I guess what was the insight that led you to founding WAG? Yeah. So when I was 
probably my whole life I was big into sports, but in high school, you know, I, I played many different sports. And then in college I was a soccer player, but I love being on teams. And I love the concept of like working together, going through the ups and downs as a team. And then like, you know, at game day, like, you know, trying hardest, leaving it all on the field, trying to win. And you and you go on these a journey with these individuals and your teammates and you help people. And, you know, you go through this wild roller coaster ride that, really kind of inspired me where I was like, when I was done with college, like I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I really liked the camaraderie of like startups. And I got introduced to startups by, you know, when I think the social network came out and just like, I just was always somebody that like just read a lot of like online, like blogs and just like, you know, Yahoo news, like back in the day, like I started to read TechCrunch and I just saw like this whole culture of startups kind of emerge. And I think Facebook had a lot to do with it because it was like open offices, people wore hoodies. And it was just like this vibe where it was like, you can be young and like, you know, be super successful and, and you're on this team together. And it's just, I was drawn to that. So that's kind of how I caught the bug of, of startups. And like, just in terms of like WAG, you know, WAG was, I believe the perfect place in the perfect timing. WAG was founded in 2014 when like the Uber for X model was really taking off. You had companies like Handy and, and obviously Uber and Lyft and Instacart just like popping up and, and gaining like a ton of traction. And, um, you know, there really wasn't anything for pets in the pet market. The, the pet market in general is, is massive. People spend an insane amount of money on their pets, but we launched WAG in Los Angeles because, you know, there was obviously everybody in LA, you know, is, has side hustles. They have multiple jobs. It's hot out. So dogs are inside all day. There's horrendous traffic. It was like the perfect place at the perfect timing. But, you know, I lived next to a place called Runyon Canyon that is a local hiking trail and everybody in the world has a dog at Runyon Canyon. And, you know, I saw all these dog walkers and, you know, these people make a lot of money walking dogs. And it's this like recurring, almost like these dog walkers have like, you know, these recurring clients. It's like a, basically like a, a like subscription service for these people. So the, um, the inspiration was seeing how many dogs are in LA inside houses when it's hot out and not being able to like go on walks and be outside consistently. So it really came down to like, you know, let's build an Uber for dog walking essentially. That's awesome. That's, that's really cool. And it makes sense why LA was a great test market to test this thesis because I mean, all the points that you make, but also LA is a massive dog market. As you say, like so many people, including myself, I have a black Labrador. So including myself, you know, so many folks just have dogs. And as you say, it's something that, you know, dogs always need to walk. That makes a lot of sense on the recurring side. So since it's a marketplace, what side of the marketplace did you initially have to focus to get this wheel in motion of the demand side or the supply? I would say more so the demand side, because when you kind of peel back the onion, you know, you're, you're having a stranger go into your house, you know, typically when you're not home. And this was like right before ring really took off. So like there wasn't really any cameras in people's homes and like you're letting somebody go into your house. as a stranger, take essentially your child that you love so much into the real world where there's 10 million things that could happen. 
So I would say the demand side was getting people over the hump that would allow that service to take place. And we knew that that was extremely challenging to do, but a lot of it was, you know, marketing around how our dog walkers, and they are to this day, amazing walkers. There's a very high bar to become a walker. It's a very rigorous process to be a walker. The demand side was for sure a hurdle to get over to get customers to feel comfortable with the, with the product. The supply side was not so much because a, you're outside getting exercise. So who, who does not, you know, it's nice to be outside and getting paid to walk outside. Right. But then you're also, you get to be around all different types of dogs daily. So like, if you really love dogs and like being outside, it's like the perfect job. You know, I believe it's a little bit more enjoyable than going to a restaurant, picking up food or just being in a car all day driving. So on the supply side, given the fact that we launched in LA, there was a lot of people that wanted to become wag walkers. No, that makes sense. I mean, I, I think it seems like once you were able to aggregate, even in the beginning stages, a small quantity, but still able to aggregate part of the demand, the supply will come because that's where the business is, right? So it seems like that was part of the strategy, which is pretty cool. What were some of the more creative strategies that you employed in order to you know, make WAG a successful marketplace in Los Angeles? And also, how did you think about expanding to other markets? Yeah, so... I think like some two creative strategies stand out to mind that I think made WAG to what it is today is the first one is we provided a free lockbox for people to use WAG. So a WAG lockbox is essentially a little box that you put your key in and there's a code that the walker has. So you can use the WAG service when you're not home. Nobody else in the whole world was doing this. We were the pioneers of the WAG lockbox and just lockbox in general in terms of like using it for your pet. Obviously, real estate agents have lockboxes, et cetera. But we were like the first people that branded this lockbox where you don't have to be at home to use the WAG service. So you can be out to dinner with your friends, click a button and have a dog walker show up in your house in 30 minutes. So that was something that really was attractive to people that were on the go and that were working late and that just weren't at home, you know, 24 seven. The second creative strategy that I thought was really interesting that we did is we provided free meet and greets to pet parents. And what that means is if you see a walker in the app or say you want a specific type of walker, for an example, if say you have a German shepherd and you want somebody that has controlled or has been around German shepherds in the past, WAG's platform will be able to introduce you to walkers that are specific to what your filter is. And that was all free of charge. So you would be able to have a walker come to your house and you have this meet and greet where your dog can meet the walker, the walker can meet the dog, you meet the walker. And if you want to move forward, you can actually, you know, book that walker. So those are two very scalable ways that and creative strategies that we used at WAG that I think really separated us from everyone else. One thing about WAG that I think a lot of people don't know is that like we did everything like non-scalable, like you could imagine. It was a very non-scalable business at first. And obviously people say like, 
do things that are scalable. But what we did was we built a service in Los Angeles where we had dedicated walkers that would either walk recurring pet parents' pets or just, you know, pet parents that like would consistently use the service. And we created this community where people love the service. And as we scaled into our second city, which was San Francisco, we knew that we needed to be in specific zip codes and we needed to have, you know, a specific amount of walkers, but there wasn't really a secret potion to like scale. It was basically building very, very strong communities in tier one cities like San Francisco, LA, New York. And then as we learned from these cities that where we launched in, we understood like how many walkers we need in each city to be successful, what marketing materials has worked in these tier one cities. And as we kind of got this data and really iterated off this data, we then created a playbook where we could essentially have this tipping point where if, when, if we hit these metrics, then we can basically flip a switch and turn it on a city. So that made us go from like three to four cities to you know thousands of cities in a short amount of time. And um, as we you know had... We had different like flywheels where we would capture like email addresses from either potential customers or, you know, emails for potential walkers. So like we would basically capture zip codes and based on like, you know, a ton of people signing up in the zip code, we had the ability just to flip a switch and, and be, be live in these zip codes. And then lastly, I would say that like we did a lot, a lot of our technology was, was very manual at first. You know, I remember being on Google voice booking walks for the first like eight months of the company. And I was charging the customers like click by click. And, you know, that was a very manual process. But once we automated a lot of our technology, things started to really pick up and we provided that, you know, frictionless experience to customers. It started to grow organically. That makes sense. And I appreciate you sharing how in the very beginning and for a while, it seems it wasn't a scalable business per se, that you had to do things that didn't scale and you had to really focus on building community, which building community sounds really tough. What were maybe some of the things that you did in order to ensure or maybe metrics that you might focus on that you were building that community? I mean, definitely like, you know, our customer service was first and foremost, like it had to be, you know, available, you know, it had to be available like all hours of the day and really like, you know, there wasn't specific metrics around community that we really focused on. It was more so, you know, our, we have to be responsive. We have to have a live person speak to someone. If they have a question, we need to be available. Those were like some of the super high level things that we did to make sure that we spoke to the community also like around just like marketing materials to the community, making sure that they were up to date with, you know, either app changes or, you know, specific feature releases. You know, when you like want to call Uber, you don't speak to somebody when you call Uber. I don't even think Uber has a phone number. I'm sure they do, but like nobody calls it, right? But at WAG, we knew that since we were going into your house when you're not home, taking your child into the real world, we need to provide that white glove service. So we really focused on that specifically. So yeah, those, and then in terms of like metrics around like providing a great service was like, you know, the one thing that made WAG really successful is that we understood what the pain points were with people that own pets around the pet service space. And, you know, one thing that we've really focused on was like, 
when someone books a walk that that walker will be at their house in an appropriate amount of time. So like for, from a metric perspective, really tracking and making sure that our walkers were also responsive. So like when a walk request comes in, the walker will then, you know, confirm that and then making sure that that person was there in a, an appropriate amount of time. So that was a way where like we provided this white glove service. And once these pet parents loved, you know, the walker or a couple of walkers that they've had, you know, they would never leave the platform. No, that's really helpful. That's really helpful. And I can understand how much customer service heavy this has to be, given, as you say, it's a stranger coming into your house to take your child. So understand that you obviously have to have that trust and love from the customer itself, because that is a big thing. So when you were thinking about fundraising, what was your fundraising strategy? I think that there's there was multiple strategies kind of as the company got larger, depending on financing it was. I think that's pretty correlated across all startups. But in terms of like our seed round, it's funny now because our seed round was like 750K and now... Rounds are like you know, three to five million, and I don't even want to talk about valuations that I'm seeing right now in Silicon Valley. But we really focused on capturing angels that could provide value from day one. And I recommend like all founders that are currently raising capital is like try to find angels that either have a experience in your specific industry, or have invested in maybe companies in that industry, or like maybe have some sort of skill set that that can help unlock like doors and stuff that you may not be able to open. So like for an example, we brought on some awesome angels that obviously had upstream capital connections. So that's always helpful. We brought on people that have invested in the pet industry before. We took capital from people that invested in the pet industry before. Other angels were people that helped around hiring, around scaling. So we really wanted to surround WAG, specifically the seed round around angels that could provide value and that loved the product that love the mission and the core values of business. And uh, yeah, so like I said, like that was the strategy is finding like really value add people in terms of, you know, from a financial perspective that, you know, that was, you know, we quantified that 750 K based on like what our roadmap was, what milestones we want to execute on and how much is that going to take to get there? So that was the strategy from that perspective. As we grew, we started like, obviously our series a was led by general catalyst. And, you know, we brought on an amazing board member at that point that was a believer in the business. And as we thought about fundraising strategies going forward, it was really, you know, finding, you know, great firms and board members that could help with the business and accelerate the growth and, and help from a strategic standpoint on, on scaling and hiring and, and whatnot. Cool. That makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate you sharing that, especially at the early stages, which, you know, in a lot of ways is the most important part because you're so early in that early team formation. And I understand as well, when you think about the strategic investors with angels that are in the space or really understand what you're building and can really be actually valuable, how important that goes long-term. And now after you left, Left wag. How did you think about what you wanted to do next? This is actually like, I haven't like publicly like really talked about this, but like, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I was really at a really big crossroads in my life. You know, at the end of WAG, I wanted to be involved with early stage startups and I wanted to share my experience with founders and stuff at the early stages because I believe that my value, where I can move the needle the most is at the earliest stages. So I started like angel investing and I started like, you know, just helping founders, advising startups, advising funds. And um, I didn't know what I wanted to do, you know? 
know, I didn't have an idea. I didn't have anybody in my, my wheelhouse that I wanted to start a company with. So I was at this kind of like, I was in like the abyss and I know like Mark Pincus, founder of Zynga talks about being in the abyss and I was for sure in, a, in an abyss. And, um, I met this gentleman named Herschel Mehta that is a very successful, he's one of the top rated YC investors. I met him at a coffee bean in Culver city and I must've talked to Herschel for about three hours. And typically when you meet somebody for the first time, you don't speak to him for three hours, but I really enjoyed his energy, his personality, but more so like how he provides value to founders. And I thought he was in like an awesome person. I mean, if I was to start a company, I would want him to write me a check. I remember I got an email from him asking me to go to India for his cousin's demo day. His cousin started an accelerator called the 100x.vc, which is the biggest pre-seed accelerator in, in India. And it's similar to Y Combinator. Again, I was in this abyss and I was like, you know what? Like, I'm just going to get on a plane. Like, and I realized I needed a visa. So I was running around LA looking for visas, crazy process. Um, but I got on a plane, man. And uh, like, I went to India and I'm, you know, I came from a small town, Rhode Island and, you know, growing up and I, I got on this plane to go to India. And when I stepped foot in Mumbai and seeing all the people and the traffic and the, this crazy high energy. And then when I went to the demo day at IIT Bombay, something inside of me just went off and was like, there is so much opportunity here for innovation to reach these people. And I was extremely impressed with the founders and just like the passion and the grit, you know, that these people have. And I knew I wanted to be a part of it. So it was weird because like, I didn't know how I was going to be a part of it. I just wanted to be a part of it. And then as I started actually, you know, maybe I manifested it. I'm not sure. But like, I started working with some Indian startups, like advising and helping them hire to some degree. And um, I realized that Herschel has like this insane access with his cousin. And I started pushing them saying, we got to do a fund, we have to do a fund, like the time is now because I kept waking up reading like this funds launching in India, this companies, you know, investing in India and now 5g is going across India. And it's just like the time is now. So almost like a light bulb went off my head saying like, I love working with Herschel. I, I love this idea on India. I don't want to be in Silicon Valley and, and be like everybody else. And I can talk about that a little bit more in depth, but uh, you know, that's what kind of led me to being like, okay, I'm going to take like what I learned at WAG, help provide my experiences there with startups in India and, and really start investing at the early stages in India. So that's what I'm working on now. That's really cool. Thanks for explaining that, that really transformative experience, it seems, and that aha moment about wanting to invest in India. And maybe not as much focus on the United States. I'm just curious, I think just to dive into that a little more, why didn't you want to maybe focus as much on the United States and India and maybe some of the differences that you see in those two markets? So I think that in the United States, specifically in Silicon Valley, I think there's over a thousand seed funds, which is a lot of funds. And it's very, very competitive. And also the economics around these companies and these in these deals are, are very pricey. And I couldn't think of something where I was like, this is how I'm different. You know what I mean? Like I feel like there's a lot of amazing founders that have funds in Silicon Valley. A lot of them like are pretty similar funds, but like I didn't have like a wedge into the market. And what I realized is, is that 
in India, first of all, there's less than 15 seed funds that I can think of. And a lot of them are not founder led. And I feel like there isn't a Silicon Valley pre-seed seed mindset in India that like a fund has actually gone there and, and has been successful. So I was drawn to that. And also the fact that, you know, there's a huge opportunity with capturing, you know, the, there's a valuation arbitrage where like a lot of these companies are properly valued at, at, you know, caps that excite me and they're not kind of overvalued like in Silicon Valley when there's barely any revenue or traction. So this whole valuation arbitrage was really attractive to me. And then also I started reaching out to like founders in India that have started multi-billion dollar businesses. And I was able to speak with them on the phone. And I just loved like these individuals, the personalities and hearing their story from starting nothing into companies that are worth billions. It really excited me. So, and I wanted to really think outside the box too. So those are some of the things that led me to to wanting to invest in, in India. And you're seeing there's over a billion people there. And another thing that like, I think is really, really interesting is that that's a lot around my fun thesis is, you know, half the population in India is under the age of 27. And all of these individuals, you know, are being exposed to, you know, mobile and internet at a very, very young age. And there's a huge opportunity specifically with trends with the Gen Z population that I've seen in India that I think will obviously penetrate trade all of India, but more so on a global basis. So those are the things that really, really started to excite me. No, I appreciate you sharing that. And that's a really interesting statistic that you threw out there about half the population's under 27. And really the profound effect that mobile first can have on, on our whole population. On a previous episode, we heard that with Maya when she talked about when she invested in sub-Saharan Africa, also Aaron as well, who also invests in Africa and other parts of the world that's emerging markets. And so, yeah, I think that's really interesting in terms of how some of the effects that could have on a market being mobile first. I'd love to explore as well in terms of like dive into more of your thesis and what trends right now in India you're focused on. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a huge opportunity in fintech within India. Well, I think less and less people are, you know, going to banks and they're obviously, you know, having their, their digital wallets. Um, everything is obviously through the mobile. So I think that there's a lot of opportunity in the fintech space. I'm also seeing a ton of really awesome trends in the wellness space. I think COVID has accelerated wellness kind of globally, but specifically in India, specifically in the Gen Z population is these individuals are adopting more of like a, a wellness lifestyle, a healthy lifestyle. So, you know, you're seeing people, you know, purchase online um, fitness programs. You're having people understand and, and learn how to like eat more, more healthy, well, meditation, things of that nature, yoga. I think wellness is just a huge market that will explode in India and also like marketplaces. I think that, you know, what I've noticed in India is there's a lot of bureaucracy and, and there's a lot of friction and a lot of different things within India and services. So marketplaces will really cut out the middleman and be able to provide a frictionless experience to these Gen Zers. And I think they're also like, there's a huge opportunity with like, I think just consumer in general. I think that since there's so many people and the Gen Zers are broad up through, you know, TikTok and, and all of these new apps. I think there's like a lot of opportunity to really capture a lot of eyeballs from a consumer standpoint for social specifically. I believe TikTok is banned in India, but there's a lot of other alternative services that are, you know, having a ton of engagement that people are using. Oh, thanks for sharing. That's really interesting. I'd love to know as well, where's the name 2AM come from? Yeah. 
it's funny. It's like, I feel like literally one out of four calls or three calls I have people ask. So it's funny throughout my entrepreneurial journey, whether if it's working with amazing people, whether if it's working with amazing investors, or even when shit hits the fan or when things go through the roof in a positive manner, it always happens for me in the middle of the night. So like, you know, investors that answer at 2am employees or co-founders that are up working because when we release something, there was a bug and we need to revert it. We need to figure it out. Or like the servers are down or, you know, we want to hire somebody. We want to make a decision now or like crazy stuff. It all happens at 2am in the morning, my experience. So I want to work with people that are just so passionate, believe in the mission that just want to provide value to others. And for me, you know, that's where the name came from. And it's funny because a lot of my calls specifically when I speak to people in India are, is around 2am, which is really weird because they're, I'm currently in Florida and the time zone is, is so super wild right now. So like I start, I maybe block out my calendar from like 1am to 3am. And it's like, I think it's in the midday in India, but for me, it's like, it's like perfect timing for them. For me, it's a little bit late, but it's weird, man, because like, I didn't even think of it from a time zone perspective. But yeah, that's where it came from. It's funny. Cause I actually, when I saw 2am, I thought of it from a time zone perspective, but that makes a lot of sense. Just as you talk about the founder journey and a lot of inspiration, inspiration can come at 2am or a lot of the work gets done at odd hours in the morning. So that makes a lot of sense in terms of why you named it. I'd love to know what's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital. I think that, so full transparency, I am really just starting my, I mean, I've been an angel investor, you know, raised capital, but my, my own experience in venture capital is somewhat limited as this is fun one. So my first response is like, I think that what I've seen is that like specifically in the United States, it's, it's not as collaborative as it is in India. And, you know, I wish that venture capital can be more collaborative. I feel like, you know, people are fighting over deals and, and over rights and it, you know, in India specifically, people love to co-invest together and it's very collaborative and it's not like winner take all in terms of like investing perspective. So that, that's one thing that I, I wish that would change in the U S specifically is like having venture capital, you know, more collaborative and, and stuff like that. And then also like, I've seen like, it's funny because like, there's a lot of VCs that money is great, but once the money's in the bank, it's like, you got to provide value. And like, just like, I would love to see more VCs provide value on like the hiring front specifically. I think that a lot of founders specifically, like maybe C to series A, they don't have a recruiter. They have so much things on their plate and they need to recruit, you know, X, Y, and Z role. And they go to their investors and, you know, the investor is not on LinkedIn talking to people all day. So it's like, it's hard to like recruit at that stage to hire really good people. So, you know, would love to see like, and would love to change and have VCs be more helpful on the recruiting front. I appreciate you sharing that. Actually, I don't think I've heard either of those responses yet on the show. So you're very original there, Brendan. But yeah, making it more collaborative and also in terms of the actual value that VCs maybe should focus on is the hiring piece. Because obviously, especially at the early stages, that's so incredibly important. 
what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? To be completely transparent, I don't read that many books. On a personal level, like when I was growing up, I didn't read that much at all, to be honest with you. I was like more looking at magazines or more blogs and stuff like that. So like, I can't give you an exact book that really inspired me specifically from a personal level. I think what inspired me was like, like I said, like I was like really into sports. So I read a lot of like sports stories and like, inspirational like i love to see people come from nothing and then and then do something so like nothing really sticks out to me like one example is the movie rudy you know that's not a book but like seeing this character go from nothing to getting on the field for one play because he worked his ass off for me every time i see that movie i get chills in the back of my neck because i love seeing people getting beat down get back up because they believe and they keep fighting and they finally get what they want because they've worked so hard for that like that's what motivated me and that's what still does motivate me professionally from a book perspective i love the book the startup of you by reed hoffman it's weird because like if you think about life and you think about like startups aside investing aside just life like your life's a startup and like you know you really start with like you know only a few things or whatever the case may be and you build this life and, and life is a startup and like i think that no matter like what you do in life, you can take it's somewhat of a startup. So the book really tells you on how to kind of navigate your life as a startup in a positive manner and, and whatnot. So I totally recommend that book too. I and, and just Reed Hoffman in general is is a huge you know idol of mine and, and whatnot. So yeah, for sure. I appreciate that. I don't think anyone's mentioned actually the startup of you yet on the show. So excited to add it to the book list. And in terms of Rudy, it's funny. I married into a whole sea of Notre Dame fans. Uh, my wife's a Notre Dame fan and like the whole family is Notre Dame and I'm the black sheep. I went to USC. So, but Rudy <laughs> is like, you know, the gem. So yeah, that's great. So what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received? That's a really great question. I feel like I've gotten a bunch of advice and I kind of just in real time, like really let it in. I'll take the advice that I've received recently that I think that has really helped me kind of propel me into what I'm doing now with 2AM Ventures. And I think it's like, and this is the quote that I kind of learned is like, well, if you worry about the past, like you're depressed. And if you're worried about the future, you have anxiety, but if you live in the present, you're like at peace. But I think that just being the best advice that I've received recently is like, just have a positive mindset, enjoy the actual moment in the present and things will work out. Like, it's so weird. Like life in general, as I look back on it, my experiences is like, if you just let things happen and you're a good person, you work hard, you put positive energy into the world, everything comes full circle. Like when I got on that plane to go to India, yeah, I was excited. It was an experience. It was a journey. Like it was fun. But like when I got home, I didn't think about doing 2AM ventures until months later. But if I didn't go on that trip, India, that would have never happened, you know, like, so like the way the world works is, is very, very interesting, but I believe everything comes full circle. And I also, another piece of advice that I think has helped me is like, you create your own luck. And I think everybody has the ability to create their own luck. You just have to like surround yourself with people smarter than you. And that's what I've been doing my whole life is like, I try to surround myself with really smart people that are way smarter than me. And I think luck just kind of finds me and you create your own luck. That's advice that like, I keep telling 
telling myself. And I'm a very motivated person. Like I love to fight. You know what I mean? <laughs> I hear you. I totally hear you. It seems like just in terms of, you know, maybe living in the present, it's also keeping an open mind, right? I mean, I think going back to your talking about India, you went to India almost on a whim, right? But you were open-minded. You were open to opportunity. And then from there, I mean, look at all the opportunity it's brought in you. My word, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, I think that like just having a positive mindset and like being available to people and providing value to people without asking for anything in return. Like people remember that and like doors will open. So like for founders, it's weird because like when you start a company, specifically like a venture backs company, or if you're trying to raise venture is like, you know, you're concerned about valuation. You're concerned about, you know, the exit. You're concerned about like, is this thing going to go to zero? And it's like, you're not really enjoying like the journey in the roller coaster and like what you're actually doing in the present. And I'm like, if my advice to founders is like, enjoy the journey. Like you're strapping yourself to a roller coaster. You have no idea when it's going to end, but like enjoy it because like, even if if you have learned so much and it's just an opportunity to try again, you know what I mean? So. No, totally. I think that's a great piece to leave off with just for founders to enjoy the journey. It's not always about the result. That's great. Brendan, thanks again so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. And thank you for uh, letting me go down memory lane. That's always a blast too. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Brendan. I highly recommend following him on LinkedIn as he shares a lot of great advice. The link is in the comments. You're also welcome to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks.